You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice and the Denver Herald. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, Aloft Residents Plead for New Housing Options as Hotel Prepares to Close, by Robert Davis. From the Denver Herald, I'll be reading, Gorillas and Other Zoo Animals Enjoy Eating Local, by Kirsten Dahl Collins, and Colorado Offers Zern Digital Math Learning, by Erica Meltzer. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from the Denver Herald. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Aloft residents plead for new housing options as hotel prepares to close, by Robert Davis. As the Aloft Hotel prepares to close on April 27th, residents currently living there asked Denver City Council on Monday night for more housing options. Denver opened several protective action hotels, like the Aloft, during the pandemic to get people experiencing homelessness who are at high risk of contracting COVID-19 into non-congregate shelters. The Aloft is one of the last two remaining protective action hotels in Denver, and its imminent closure has left many hotel residents scrambling to find new housing options. After the Aloft closes, the last remaining protection action hotel in Denver will be the Park Avenue Inn at 3500 Park Avenue West. The property is scheduled to close at the end of June. All of these programs that you put in place during the pandemic were for the greater good, Larry Blackwell, who has been staying at the Aloft for more than a year, told Denver City Council. Now we're just asking for a little help. The Aloft and other protective action hotels became figureheads of Denver's economic struggles during the COVID-19 pandemic. Located in the Central Business District, the Aloft is within walking distance of retail and entertainment options like the Colorado Convention Center, the 16th Street Mall, and Union Station. All these businesses saw their revenue decline significantly during the pandemic because of local restrictions. Altogether, Denver has paid the Aloft Hotel nearly $20 million since the beginning of the pandemic to provide food and shelter options for 140 unhoused residents of Denver, according to city records. Those funds came from the American Rescue Plan Act, the $1.9 trillion economic stimulus package that President Joe Biden signed in March of 2021. In January, Aloft residents received notice that the hotel would be closing at the end of April. But some residents said that was not enough time to find new housing options. They've told us that they'll help us find housing vouchers, but they haven't, said John McClarity, a resident of the Aloft who suffers from nerve damage and other conditions. He added that he has struggled to get his case manager to help him find rides to doctor appointments. Multiple agencies have attempted to connect Aloft residents with new housing options as well. For example, Denver partnered with the Salvation Army to match residents with housing vouchers. The Colorado Department of Health Care Policy and Financing has also helped people enroll in Colorado's state Medicaid program, which includes housing-related services. Overall, 72 of the remaining residents at Aloft have been relocated to other housing options, according to the Department of Housing Stability. However, there are still 19 individuals who are waiting for housing placements. 
We recognize that this transition is a difficult one, and we are so grateful to all of our partners who are working diligently in the final days of this facility's operation to find the best possible outcomes for all of our guests and to transition them smoothly, Laura Brzezinski, HOT's Executive Director, said in a press release. The following articles are from the Denver Herald. Gorillas and Other Zoo Animals Enjoy Eating Local by Kirsten Dahl Collins. Cal, a 380-pound African gorilla at the Denver Zoo, grasped his floppy banana leaf the way some people hold a cone of caramel swirl ice cream. Slowly and deliberately, he savored every bite. Over at the zoo's Tropical Discovery Building, Rex, a rhinoceros iguana native to the Caribbean, munched his way through a special breed of spineless prickly pear cactus. Nearby, a shy 40-pound capybara named Rebecca, a rodent native to Central and South America, couldn't resist a fresh pile of water lettuce. It was snack time at the Denver Zoo, courtesy of production manager Patrick Kroll and his two staffers, Marcel Condevo and Keith Good. Smiling, the three horticulturists watched the animals polish off their greens. Kroll and his staff had grown these tropical plants in several designated city park greenhouses, which serve as kitchen gardens for many of the zoo's 3,000 animals. Whether it's cardamom and ginger leaves, banana trees, or hibiscus flowers, the greenhouse staff enables zoo animals to eat local, even if they crave flora from across the globe. The gardeners also grow landscaping plants for animal enclosures, from tall stands of euphorbia cactus to sweet gum trees. We're trying to grow as much as we can locally, Kroll said, adding that growing exotics can take quite a bit of research. The greenhouse specialties are grown without pesticides, using recycled water. All of this saves money the zoo would otherwise spend importing tropical plants from Florida. One greenhouse holds a grove of banana trees, which are especially useful, since every part of the plant can be used. Kroll said the fruit is fed to fruit bats, while the floppy leaves are popular snacks for many animals, including sloths and smaller reptiles, as well as great apes. Elephants and rhinos chew the banana stalks, which increases their fiber intake and acts as a natural toothbrush. The production staff works closely with the zoo's battery of veterinarians and nutritionists. Animal diets have come a long way since 1896 when the Denver Zoo began with a single caged bear cub named Billy Bryan in City Park. Although history does not record what Billy ate, it would probably make today's zoo nutritionists shudder. These days, animal diets are strictly controlled in order to keep them healthy. Often that means adding the right vegetation. We get calls if an animal is ill, Kroll said. Many of the plants in the zoo greenhouses have medicinal qualities. Kroll said that leaves from the ginger and cardamom plants, plants help prevent heart problems in great apes. Colorful blue, green, and yellow lorikeets, a small parrot from Australia, keep their feathers healthy by pecking at hibiscus flowers. According to Kroll, the pollen and nectar of these flowers supply the birds with important amino acids. Some plants are equally important to animals' mental health. The Denver Zoo earned its accreditation from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums by taking animal well-being seriously, and that requires plenty of the branches, twigs, and leaves known as browse. 
Cuttings from a range of trees and shrubs, including willow, mulberry, and butterfly bush, are important, but not just for nutrition, but also to encourage natural activities like foraging. For example, Kroll said, Tundra, the female grizzly bear, enjoys stripping and eating the leaves off hackberry branches while the zoo's Mongolian horses prefer to chew bark off cottonwood logs. Elephants and primates like to exercise their teeth on bamboo stalks. Several passive solar greenhouses, known as hoop houses, help extend the growing season for browse. And whenever it's time to prune trees and bushes in City Park, Kroll and his team are there, collecting boughs, twigs, and leaves. Kroll also roams the zoo's 80 acres, searching for underutilized patches of dirt where he and his staff can grow additional browse in the summer months. Last year, they supplied more than 1,300 pounds of leafy trimmings to zoo denizens. When the zoo's urban farmers aren't running loads of produce over to hungry zebras and giraffes, they are searching for more ways to maximize every square foot of growing space. Even the rafters of the Tropical Discovery Building are being put to use, with a hydroponic growing table that nourishes crops of collard greens. According to Kroll, many animals love nutrient-dense greens like collard and dandelion. Perhaps we humans should take a few dining cues from the zoo. Colorado offers Zern Digital Math Learning by Erica Meltzer. Colorado is making the digital learning program Zern Math available for free to schools statewide as part of a broader effort to address gaps in math learning that widened during the pandemic. Governor Jared Polis has set aside up to $6 million in pandemic relief money to pay for licenses for the digital program and to pay for printed materials for schools that adopt Zern's math curriculum Training also will be available to teachers in how to use the new platform. Math scores on state and national standardized tests declined during the pandemic, with sharper drops in math than in reading and writing. Both educators and policymakers are focused on how to help students gain skills they missed out on during the three disrupted years. Last month, Polis and lawmakers unveiled a bipartisan $25 million proposal to offer widespread after-school tutoring in math, expand teacher training, and encourage districts to adopt high-quality curriculum. In addition, the initiative included plans for the state to pay for licenses for a digital math accelerator and make them available at no cost to schools statewide. Polis announced this week that Colorado has selected Zern Math as the state's online math program. The state did not request proposals, instead choosing Zern based on studies and reviews and purchasing it from a software reseller at a set price. We are taking an all-hands-on-deck approach to boost student math achievement and make sure Colorado kids have the support and practice they need to excel in math, Polis said in a press release. This new access saves school districts and families money and is part of our ongoing work to provide high-quality education for every Colorado student. Polis spokeswoman Melissa Dworkin said the governor's team considered several programs and chose Zern Math based on studies provided by the company that showed students who used Zern regularly made substantially more progress than those who didn't. Educators who study math instruction and ways students learn through gaming and online platforms said Zern has positive elements, but cautioned that teachers need training and time to learn how to use it well. 
It shouldn't be used as a substitute for in-person instruction by well-trained teachers, they said, and teachers need to make sure students are engaged and supported in their learning. Started by New York teachers and backed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the program is used widely in states like Tennessee and Texas. Many New York City schools also use Zern Math. The program is intended to be used in conjunction with in-person whole class instruction. Mary Pittman, president of the Colorado Council of Teachers of Mathematics, said she feels hopeful excitement about the plan. It is new for Colorado to have access to a program like this across the board, she said. She described the platform as offering flexible, high-quality materials built around common core state standards, which are the basis for Colorado's academic standards. She said Zern was originally used most often for intervention with students who were far behind in math, but that it also offers a well-regarded comprehensive core curriculum, data that can inform teachers' daily instruction, as well as lessons that can be used during tutoring or at home. David Webb, an associate professor of math education at the University of Colorado Boulder, who also heads a research consortium on math instruction, said Zern seems to have good content and be based on solid ideas around math instruction. He worries, though, about relying too much on digital platforms when it was the lack of interaction with teachers and peers that contributed to learning gaps during online and hybrid school. To see it resolved through digital platforms, it rubs me a little bit the wrong way, he said. I understand the desire to get back on track and come up with personalized interventions, but to say we're going to have you spend more time on technology, I think we need a more holistic fix. A 2019 Johns Hopkins study found students in some subgroups using Zern made statistically significant progress, but overall results were less significant. Students in schools that used Zern for more hours a week generally saw more improvement than those that used it for fewer hours. Teachers in the study generally liked the program and felt it supported student learning. Even so, many teachers reported the format of Zern, which requires students to work independently and to read, listen, and type responses, made it hard for some students to use. Meanwhile, students who used Zern in the study were less likely to express confidence in their math skills compared with students at schools that didn't use Zern. A potential explanation, the study authors wrote, was that students may have found the Zern material more challenging than previously experienced, which may have affected their feeling toward mathematics in general. Webb said these types of findings underscore the importance of coupling digital platforms with instruction from teachers and opportunities for students to work through math problems with their peers. It's also critical for teachers to get training, something that has become much more challenging as teachers lose their planning periods to cover for colleagues or can't go to conferences due to substitute shortages, Webb said. Arturo Cortez, an assistant professor of learning sciences and human development and director of the Learning to Transform, LITT, video gaming lab at the University of Colorado, said the teachers he works with who already use Zern love it because it helps them see quickly which students got the lesson and which need more help. Zern also has the potential to bridge divides between the home and the classroom and help parents better support their children's learning, Cortez said. He cautioned, though, that teachers need opportunities to learn how to use the program, play with it, and think through how it can help their students, 
not just a perfunctory session to get familiar with the interface. It's also important to see how and whether students engage with the tool. With a lot of digital tools, we sit kids down in front of them and don't spend time with them while they're using them, he said. What makes them engaging? What makes kids have that commitment? And how do we create environments like that in the classroom? Colorado schools can sign up for the Zern Math for the 2023 to the 2024 school year. Suncor released sulfur dioxide spikes, State says, by Michael Booth. The Suncor refinery in Commerce City sent potentially dangerous spikes of sulfur dioxide into the surrounding neighborhood early April 12th after an equipment failure, though the state health department's notice didn't go out until that evening. Sulfur dioxide detected from Suncor leaped to 155 parts per billion and 186 parts per billion, while the EPA's National Ambient Air Quality Standards are 75 parts per billion. But to reach an official exceedance, the sulfur dioxide levels must be that high for over an hour. By 9 a.m. Wednesday, a state news release said the levels had dropped significantly. The state release at 6.23 p.m. said the spike readings were verified a short time ago. Despite the drop in the monitored sulfur, sulfur dioxide levels, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment urged families in the future to limit outdoor exercise, keep windows closed, and consider an air purifier. The short exposures to sulfur dioxide that occurred earlier could have exacerbated asthma and made breathing difficult, especially during exercise or physical activity, the health department said. The state release said that early Wednesday, the Suncor facility reported that number two sulfur recovery unit and associated tail gas unit in plant one briefly tripped offline due to a level indicator issue, resulting in excess sulfur dioxide from the tail gas unit incinerator, H25, flaring of acid gas, gas with elevated hydrogen sulfide in the plant one flare, elevated hydrogen sulfide in the plant one fuel gas system. Neighbors and environmental advocacy groups have been expanding independent monitoring of emissions from Suncor and amplifying calls for a complete shutdown or at least far tougher state regulation of the refinery. The only refinery in Colorado, Suncor supplies a large portion of vehicle gasoline for the Denver metro area and airport fuel for Denver International Airport. A fire in December damaged equipment at Suncor and forced a weeks-long shutdown of the complex, followed by a series of emissions notifications to neighbors as Suncor worked to bring the facility back online. The shutdown also significantly raised gas prices for Colorado drivers during the winter. Multiple monitors around Suncor check for dangerous emissions, including some run by a neighborhood nonprofit, Cultivando, through a state environmental justice project. Cultivando released a report from Boulder atmospheric scientist Detlev Helmig in March warning of exactly what happened in mid-April, short-term emissions from Suncor that endanger health but do not officially break EPA limits. Helmig's instruments identified temporary local spikes in levels of pollutants like benzene or harmful, harmful particulate matter. Cultivando's monitoring program can identify spikes that are short-lived but impactful on human health, Helmig says. Pollution levels go up and down, up and down very dynamically all the time, he said at a Cultivando community briefing. 
If you happen to go out there at a certain time when levels are low, it may look not too concerning and pretty clean, but you come back just a half an hour later and conditions might have changed very dramatically. Colorado to receive $31 million settlement from Juul by Olivia Prinzel. Colorado is expected to receive $31.7 million from electronic cigarette manufacturer Juul Labs in a multi-state settlement over claims the company used deceptive marketing tactics and promoted products to teens, the state's attorney general announced on April 11th. The lawsuit, filed in 2020, claimed Juul was misrepresenting the health risks of their vapes and targeted young people by hiring social media influencers to promote e-cigarettes and brand ambassadors to give free samples to teens at Colorado convenience stores. This settlement is a victory for the state of Colorado and everyone who fell victim to Juul's reckless, deceptive, and unconscionable marketing tactics, Attorney General Phil Weiser said in a statement. While no amount of money or new restriction on Juul's business practices can undo the harms caused by the teen vaping epidemic, this settlement will make great strides toward reducing it and can support young people who are hurting now more than ever. Vapes typically contain the same addictive nicotine as other tobacco products. The settlement funds will be used solely to address tobacco prevention and teen mental health programs, Weiser said in a news conference, despite a news release his office sent earlier that said it would be used in part to cover attorney's fees. That $31 million is going to be dedicated entirely to supporting young people who have suffered both from a a public health and from a mental health perspective, Weiser said. The kids are not okay. Right now, they're suffering. This vaping epidemic is part of that. It has inflicted harms that remain and that need to be addressed. The Attorney General's office will send $167,000 to the National Association of Attorneys General to reimburse them for a grant they provided for investigation and litigation costs, according to the settlement. Under the settlement agreement, Juul will be prohibited from using those marketing tactics in the future, Weiser said. The company will also be required to hire a compliance officer and provide the public opportunities to review documentation of their compliance with the agreement. Most recent state data shows that 16% of Colorado teens reported they had vaped in the past month. When Colorado filed the suit, the state had the highest rate of vaping teenagers in the nation at 27%, double the national average, according to the Healthy Kids Colorado survey. Juul has settled lawsuits with 47 states and territories, paying more than $1 billion, the company said. With this settlement, we are nearing total resolution of the company's historical legal challenges and securing certainty for our future, a company spokesperson said. Since our company-wide reset in the fall of 2019, underage use of Juul products has declined by 95% based on the National Youth Tobacco Survey. Colorado sued Juul with other attorneys general, including from California, the District of Columbia, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Mexico, and New York. The total settlement was $462 million. Late last year, Juul announced it settled more than 5,000 cases brought by about 10,000 plaintiffs in the U.S., sidestepping a substantial amount of legal issues for the company. 
These settlements represent a major step towards strengthening Jewel Labs' operations and securing the company's path forward to fulfill its mission to transition adult smokers away from combustible cigarettes while combating underage use, the company said in a news release. Native American Students' Right to Wear Regalia at Graduation in Colorado Bill by Jason Gonzalez Colorado would guarantee the right of Native American students to wear items such as eagle feathers and other traditional clothing, clothing at graduation ceremonies through a bill under consideration this year. Federal law protects Native American religious and cultural rights, but students sometimes run into issues or find flat-out prohibition at schools when it comes to wearing regalia at ceremonies, advocates say. They say families must then fight to make districts aware of the importance of traditional clothing, or students running into a lack of understanding might choose to skip the graduation ceremonies altogether. Senate Bill 202 would ensure K-12 schools, colleges, and universities create policies to protect Native American students so they don't run into issues. Senator Jesse Danielson, a Wheat Ridge Democrat and co-sponsor of the bill, said she's heard of school officials telling students they have to hide, remove, or even throw away regalia because of policies that maintain uniformity at graduations. She said some students have even reported school officials touched or confiscated students' eagle's feathers, a cultural and religious symbol. This bill clarifies for the school that you do not interfere with this, Danielson said. You cannot harass these students and prevent them from wearing their traditional regalia. Schools asking Native American students to remove or throw away items is like a school asking a student to get rid of a Jewish or Christian symbol, said Melvin Baker, Southern Ute tribal council member, during a mid-April hearing. He added that the United States has a history of trying to erase Native American culture, and the bill would ensure students get to honor their identity and their achievement. Tribal regalia plays a unique role for graduating Native students, Baker said. These items are often gifted to students by parents or tribal elders in recognition of this achievement. The Native American Rights Fund receives many calls every spring from families across the country looking for support on how to ensure that they can wear regalia at graduation ceremonies, said Matthew Campbell, the organization's deputy director. It's been a few years since he fielded a call from Colorado families, but he said families do sometimes run into trouble with schools. Usually when we reach out to the schools and explain the importance of these items, once they understand, they usually will allow them to be worn, Campbell said. In recent years, some states have added teachings about North American religion and culture. Other changes that try to create more respect toward Native American culture have happened, including a Colorado law passed last year that bans Native American mascots. Colorado would join eight other states in ensuring Native American students can wear traditional regalia. Senator Sonia Jaquez-Lewis, a Longmont Democrat co-sponsoring the legislation, said the goal is to make sure that every Colorado district understands. The bill defines qualifying students as members of a tribe, eligible tribal members, or those of Native American descent. The bill says that immediate family members would also be allowed to wear traditional Native American dress during their students' graduation ceremony.
Speakers at a Senate Education Committee hearing said traditional dress might include clothing, bracelets, necklaces, or eagle feathers. The bill needs a final vote in the Senate before heading to the House. The bill doesn't say how schools will ensure students have the right to wear traditional items, Jaquez Lewis said. We leave the details up to the school districts and the schools, but what we do in this bill is we set guardrails, she said. Some districts have started to create policies. Cherry Creek School District has created a ceremony for Native American students and is working on graduation ceremony policies, said Aspen Rendon, a partner with the district's Department of Equity, Culture, and Community Engagement. The district also has an Indigenous Action Committee working toward creating a more inclusive district, Rendon said. Jeffrey Chavez, the district's Indigenous and Native Student Community Liaison, said it's important to recognize Native traditions, especially in urban districts like Cherry Creek. Ensuring students get to wear their regalia at ceremonies helps carry on traditions. That's how we honor ourselves and our community and family with those traditions, he said. Indigenous Action Committee member Donna Christjohn said a principal didn't allow her son in 2020 to wear Native American regalia at his graduation ceremony. Her son ended up not participating in the ceremony. She's glad the district is changing and happy to have helped make lawmakers aware of the issue. This is so impactful for all families to know that someone will not push back when their child decides that they want to show up as who they really are. Chris John said, that's a huge step in the right direction. Sitting Bull Portrait Sells at Auction to Private Bidder by Sandra Hale Schulman. The rare portrait of Lakota leader Sitting Bull that was up for sale at Blackwell Auctions sold for $67,100 in mid-March to a private purchaser from the northeastern United States. The portrait was one of four paintings of Sitting Bull created by New York artist and activist Carolyn Weldon and is thought to be the only one still in private hands. Stored for decades and needing repair, the solemn portrait of the charismatic Lakota leader was consigned to auction by heirs of the original owner from 1890. The artist's friendship with Sitting Bull was made into a 2017 film, Woman Walks Ahead. I just tried to promote it as best as I could, Blackwell auctioneer Edwin Bailey told ICT. I knew that it was a very special piece, and the story was absolutely fascinating. The deeper I got into it, I watched the movie and contacted the historical researchers. Bailey says the painting was special because it, it is vastly superior to the other two Weldon painted. The value of the painting was based on its subject matter and its dramatic history, not the popularity of the artist or broad demand for the artist's work, which is usually what drives the value of a piece of art. Daniel Gugisberg, historian and researcher, told ICT that the portrait was not done from a sitting, one of several revisions to the story that was portrayed in the 2017 film featuring Jessica Chastain as Weldon and Michael Greyeyes as Sitting Bull. It is based on a portrait made by photographers Palmquist and Jurgens of Minneapolis in March of 1884, Gugisberg said. The other two known paintings of Sitting Bull she made are based on photographs, notably by William Notman and Son of Montreal, taken in August of 1885 while Sitting Bull toured with Buffalo Bill's Wild West. She did not paint from life, 
would not have had the means to do so, and Sitting Bull certainly would not have agreed to sit for a painted portrait for hours or days on end. Carolyn Weldon certainly had artistic talent, but not beyond an amateur's level. Weldon went to see Sitting Bull, 1831-1890, in the late 1880s to help him politically, not to paint him. She ended up staying and moving into his camp at the Standing Rock Reservation with his family. Gugesberg said that the painting presumably was made while Carolyn Weldon had briefly returned to Brooklyn in the latter part of 1889 and early 1890. The date on the painting is 1890. Weldon is believed to have sold the painting to the man whose heirs recently put it up for auction. As far as I know, no painting by Carolyn Weldon has ever sold at auction, Gugesberg said. While the story in the film was greatly changed, even without the motion picture, I still think this would have been an amazing piece because of the story. Bailey said Weldon endured a lot of heat, even physical violence, for promoting Native rights in the late 1800s. Bailey said he started the bids on March 18th at $20,000 and said the final sales figure was reached in about two minutes. It didn't have any bids on it to start with, advance bids, pre-option bids, he said. There were several people that just got on when the option started started and it ran to where it ran. That's one of those pieces that could have gone anywhere. Bailey said the seller is granddaughter of William Lafayette Darling, a railroad engineer from St. Paul that was involved in the construction of the Northern Pacific Line at the time that went through the Dakotas onto Montana and Idaho. He's believed to have purchased the painting from Weldon. When he died in 1938, the painting went to his daughter and then to her daughter in 1990. The painting will soon be shipped to the new owner. We've been in touch with the buyer, and it's been hanging up here on the wall for several weeks now, he said. I'm looking at it right now. Bailey said the auction house does not release details about the buyer. I can say that they're in the Northeast, and I hope they loan or exhibit it, he said. It's not something I can even fathom somebody just poking down a hallway and looking at once in a while. I just don't see that happening. I think it's going to show up again, and I think it's going to show up at a museum, perhaps by a private collector. The best I'll say is, that is what I hope is the outcome. Stitching for Babies in Need by Taylor Shaw Surrounded by colorful fabric patterns, handmade baby items, and frequent laughter, volunteers of the Warm Hearts, Warm Babies nonprofit went to work on a Friday morning to put together layettes for organizations who need them, the nonprofit has a list of roughly 40 agencies it delivers items to throughout Colorado, said Kathleen Williams, the nonprofit's grant coordinator. The list includes the Children's Hospital Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, Platte Valley Medical Center, and Denver Medical Center. Warm Hearts is totally made up of volunteers, said Sandy Powis, president of the board of directors. Everyone's volunteering with their hearts and skills to make things for newborn babies, preemies, to help them get a good start in this world. Volunteers sew, knit, crochet, and quilt items such as bibs, burp pads, jackets, hats, and blankets. The items are assembled into a layette, which is a collection of clothing and accessory for newborn infants. Each layette contains a quilt, two receiving blankets, bibs, burp pads, clothing, and a goodie bag containing such items as a bottle, some diapers, and a small toy. These items are delivered in a handmade tote bag. 
All these items are made with love, Powis said. We don't connect to the individuals personally. We deliver the layettes to hospitals, birthing centers, food banks, anyone that can help us help the newborn. A number of the mothers who receive these items are experiencing homelessness, sometimes living in shelters or in their cars, Williams said. The nonprofit also offers items for the neonatal intensive care units at hospitals in Colorado, such as positioning roles that are used to help support the infants. We also provide clothing for babies that don't survive, from tiny little babies to full-term babies, Williams said. We have clothing for them that we hand out at the hospitals. Included in those burial layettes is a cloth-made envelope intended for the parents to hold important items and memories, Powis said. It's sad, but it's so important, Powis said. And to know that a mom wouldn't have to go out or send her mom or her sister to go out and find things for her precious one that has passed, that it can be given to them and that's not a worry for them. The nonprofit's origin dates back to 1996, when a woman named Victoria Swain gave birth to a stillborn infant, according to the nonprofit's website. The hospital she was at could not provide a blanket or clothes for her infant, prompting Swain to look into how she could help donate these types of items. After recruiting some volunteers and spending a few years working through a different organization called Newborns in Need, in 2000, Swain and the other board members decided to create their own nonprofit, Warm Hearts, Warm Babies. Powis estimated the nonprofit currently has about 200 volunteers and 12 work groups throughout the state, including in Arvada, Brighton, Littleton, and Thornton. Powis is part of the work group in Conifer, where she lives. She joined the organization roughly six years ago. I've been doing things for babies for many years, donating to other groups, but they were all missing something. There was no social connection with anyone else making things, Powis said. I found that they had a local organization up here in Conifer, and it was like, that's it. That's one I can link up with. I can meet people right here in our community. Williams learned about the nonprofit through a quilt show, as representatives of the organization had a table at the event. Living in Aurora at the time, she initially joined the Aurora Group. Since then, she has moved to Colorado Springs and joined the local work group there. The importance of the nonprofit's work resonated with Williams after an interaction she had with a stranger a number of years ago, she said. I was still up in Aurora, out buying onesies and things for our goodie bags so that we could deliver onesies and diapers and things, and a lady was standing behind me at the cash register, Williams said. The woman asked her what she was buying the materials for, to which Williams began to explain warm hearts, warm babies. And she stopped me and said, then I need to thank you because my daughter just had a baby at the hospital and it was wintertime and we had nothing to bring that baby home in. And I told the nurses and they brought us one of your bags, Williams said. And so that keeps me going, she continued. I think about that and that keeps me going and seeing how important it is, the work we do. Materials for making items and assembling the layettes are stored in the nonprofit's building, based in Arvada, which is nicknamed the Baby House. Among the volunteers who gathered at the building that Friday was Glinda Bredesen, an Arvada resident who has been part of the organization since 1999. Over time, the nonprofit has gradually grown and expanded in different areas of Colorado, said Bredesen, vice president of the nonprofit's board. 
Volunteering for the nonprofit has become a family affair, as Bredesen's 18-year-old granddaughter, Eleanor Morris, worked alongside Bredesen in the baby house. I remember volunteering here when I was a little girl, Morris said, explaining she and her cousins would help assemble goodie bags. I've always loved it. Since then, she began crocheting and knitting items to donate. She was thrilled when she made her first two baby hats and brought them in, Bredesen said. Although Morris lives in Virginia, she visits when she can and also plans to still create items to donate and ship them to the nonprofit. I was so excited just to be here and volunteer because I grew up always coming here. Every time I visited, I would be here, and it was just amazing, she said. One of Bredesen's favorite parts of the nonprofit is the people. Vicki Lutz, an Arvada resident who began volunteering for the organization in 2020, agreed and said that's true for most of the volunteers. Lutz said the nonprofit has incredibly talented volunteers. She showed off intricate blankets, toys, and clothing items in the baby house that volunteers spent hours creating. The talent of the volunteers isn't just make for making impressive items, though. It can be applied toward teaching younger people the craft. Eleanor came to us. She didn't know how to knit or crochet, and now she's phenomenal at it. There are so many people here that are willing to teach, Lutz said. The need for more younger volunteers is a challenge the nonprofit faces. We're all older, and it's just not going to be sustainable if we don't get young people, Lutz said. Powis said the organization also needs more volunteers who will sew. The last couple of months, unfortunately, we've had to cut back. We've had to cut back on the clothes, Powis said. We were sending out two outfits. Now it's down to one. Before COVID-19, the nonprofit was able to have a backup supply of clothing, she said. Now the organization is scraping by, month by month, due to losing a lot of the active members. On top of the need for volunteers, there are also financial pressures. Our donations have gone down drastically over the last couple of years, Powis said. And again, our volunteers and the items coming in have really gone down. But the need is still the same. More, more. To help raise funds to pay for costs such as rent, volunteers will create items to sell at various craft shows. The nonprofit is also one of the charities that people can select as part of the King Supers Community Rewards Program. As the grant coordinator, Williams plans to work this year on finding new areas to get donations and support, she said. She noted that Sue Lee, co-founder of the nonprofit Socket to Em Sock campaign, has helped by not only donating socks to warm hearts, warm babies, but also in providing connections to other people. The nonprofit creates 125 to 150 layettes every month, Powis said. The main goal she has for this year is getting enough donations of money and items to continue the nonprofit's work. There are other organizations out there that would love to have us help them, but at this point we can't go out and look for more agencies. But I know they're there. I know there's more mamas that could use the help, she said. I would like not only to be able to help who we have, but also for it to grow and help more. There are a variety of ways that community members can support Warm Hearts, Warm Babies, Williams explained. Even if people don't sew or they don't crochet, they can help in, you know, at the baby house or they can help in collecting donations for us, do a donation drive for us in their schools or their churches, 
to help us so that we can continue to help these mothers and babies and give them a good start in life, Williams said. Powis encouraged people to reach out to the nonprofit and come visit them. Those interested in learning more about Warm Hearts, Warm Babies can visit warmheartswarmbabies.org. We're a world that needs to be more interactive with each other, Powis said, emphasizing the importance of volunteering. It's so good for your soul. Spring is coming. Join us as a community scientist by Jennifer Neal. After the cold and wet winter we've been experiencing in Denver, I know everyone is looking forward to spring. As the days grow longer and warmer, we all start looking for the telltale signs that spring is arriving. Birds chirping, trees leafing out, lilac buds, bulbs emerging out of the damp soil. As you observe nature around you, why not start taking pictures, recording your observations, and contributing to large projects as a community scientist? April is the perfect month to join community science efforts across the globe. At the Denver Botanic Gardens, we seek to connect people with plants. Our scientists are particularly interested in studying patterns and processes of biodiversity. One way we do this is through community science, also known as citizen science, initiatives such as the Denver Ecoflora Project. These initiatives allow participants to connect with plants by making observations of biodiversity patterns in their environment. Ecoflora is based on the traditional flora concept, a list or inventory of plants in a given area or period of time. The echo in Ecoflora represents going beyond a traditional flora and encompassing the study of urban ecosystems. We run the Denver Ecoflora project on the iNaturalist platform where we engage the community in documenting plants living in the Denver metro area. Our goal is to document all plants living in the seven-county metro area, Adams, Arapahoe, Boulder, Broomfield, Denver, Douglas, and Jefferson counties, using the iNaturalist app. Why, you may ask? Well, understanding the flora of an area is the best way to protect it. As part of the Ecoflora project, we send out monthly challenges called EchoQuests to engage participants in documenting a specific species, group of plants, or theme. April's EchoQuest has two parts. The first is focused on some of the first flowers to emerge in spring, the pasque flowers. Then, starting April 28th, a global competition begins with the start of the City Nature Challenge, a challenge to document the most biodiversity within cities. Using the iNaturalist app, you can make observations of any wild organism, plant, bird, insect, fungi. Observations made between April 28th and May 1st count toward the competition. Last year, we had nearly 400 participants observe more than 600 species. Our goal is to surpass those numbers this year. And if the wet winter unfolds into a sunny spring, we just might be able to do it. Many local partners are organizing hikes or bio-blitzes during the City Nature Challenge. You can contribute to scientific studies by downloading the iNaturalist app and using it to take photos of the nature around you. We encourage you to get outside, feel the sun on your face, and contribute to science while you're out there. Hudson Gardens is Gem for Generations by Sonia Ellingbo. I spent a happy Monday afternoon soaking up Colorado sunshine and the beautiful views at Hudson Gardens with my grandson. 
and I wanted to remind readers that it's a really lovely way to spend a few hours just being there. It's free, beautifully maintained by South Suburban Parks and Recreation District, and offers an ever-changing menu of growing things. Soon, the rose garden will be blooming, as will the water lily pond and trees and shrubs, including fragrant lilacs. In 1940, Colonel King C. Hudson was stationed at Fort Logan in Denver, and his wife, Evelyn, joined him. He was ready to retire soon, and the couple decided they would like to live in the area and start the restaurant she had been wanting to operate after a career in the foods business in Chicago, Marshall Field's Tea Room in particular. They looked at various properties and decided on a large plot of farmland in Littleton, near the bank of the South Platte River. Local old-timers in this primarily agricultural community shook their heads over that restaurant idea. People will never come this far south to have dinner, they said. First, the Hudsons built a log home for themselves close to the riverbank, then they designed and built the Log Country Kitchen restaurant on Santa Fe Drive. The pair had traveled widely in Europe and Asia, and she had written a series of tummy travel books about food they'd enjoyed. Some reprints are available in the gardens' shop. The restaurant opened with buffet assortments of foods reflecting various nationalities and added some more traditional menu dinners as well. The Country Kitchen was an immediate success, was recommended in the latest Duncan Hines travel guidebook that many driving travelers carried, and drew crowds from Denver as well, who returned soon with more friends in tow. At first, the pair would close the restaurant in the winter after the holidays and travel for a while, opening again in warmer weather. But eventually, it had a staff who could keep the operation running. In the early 1950s, Marathon Oil and Martin Marietta both opened labs nearby, drawing employees who enjoyed good food. Our family came to work for Marathon and soon visited the Hudson's restaurant with our families. Moving here in the middle of the U.S., with Rocky Mountains close enough for a picnic excursion, seems to guarantee lots of company, which is usually fine as long as there's time to wash sheets in between. Eventually, the busy couple retired, renting the log building to another food person, who operated as the Northwoods Inn, with a huge Paul Bunyan figure standing by their sign. The Hudsons continued to live in the Riverside home. He raised purebred horses, and she became interested in beautifying her city, contributing trees and planting materials to the new Arapahoe Community College campus and elsewhere. She also served on the Littleton Fine Arts Board, seeking ways to pay for sculpture and an art collection for the growing city. She told me of a visit to the city planning office to inquire about something, a visit she made quite frequently. While there, she saw a drawing on a desk of riverfront land that included hers, she realized. Planner's drawings showed that land filled with houses and apartments. I can remember Evelyn telling me a few days later that she had driven home and immediately called her lawyer and set up a foundation that day which would protect the Hudson acreage as open land. Her thinking quickly progressed to creating a place of beauty that people of all ages could enjoy and appreciate, and perhaps learn a bit about how to grow beautiful plants and teach others about that beauty. She called a few close friends and her beloved nephew, Don Hadfield, and soon was involved in setting up the first Hudson Gardens Board of Directors, which met in her living room monthly, and at times more often. 
Local landscape architect Doug Rockney was hired to design Hudson Gardens with input from British horticulturist Andrew Pierce. Board members and staff were generous with time and expertise at public gardens visited across the U.S. and in Canada, from Longwood Gardens in Philadelphia to Bouchard Gardens in Vancouver, Canada. Plans were drawn and redrawn and plant lists were developed and landscapers hired. Soon, a lovely garden was open for business. I feel certain Evelyn is somewhere smiling. Highlighting Denver Authors Anthony Garcia Alien Expatriates by Christy Stedman Colorado native and Denverite Anthony Garcia specializes in telling the stories of the voices who are often not heard. All of my books have that theme, he said. I write the stories of the little voices. Garcia's latest book, Alien Expatriates, was published in December last year. It is fiction based on reality, following the story of Itali, a deferred action for childhood arrivals immigrant recipient from Denver, and Nephi, a giant from another planet. It's a love story from a man's point of view, Garcia said. It's funny, but it also deals with serious topics such as deportation. The two are aliens and form a special friendship as Nephi tries to comprehend an earthling's profound feelings of love. The interplay of both aliens brings in the love passages of famous writers as Pablo Neruda, Isabel Allende, Garcia Marquez, Luis Borges, and Garcia Lorca to share the deep felt passages of a definition of love from both aliens on the run from authorities, Garcia said. The story tells of an enticing relationship in a coming-of-age scenario. It includes some sci-fi knowledge, which Garcia shared to provide an insight of, perhaps, what aliens from another planet possess in their capabilities. Question and answer with Anthony Garcia. In what ways do you think Denver readers will connect with alien expatriates? The thrill of Itali, who laments the loss of his girlfriend and his journey being sent back to Puebla, Mexico, is common for many Mexican alien expatriates who are sent back involuntarily. Nephi, the epitome of an educated American expatriate, is also on the run from the Men in Shades authorities and question his true passion to be on this planet. The play on words will entice readers to question who really is an expatriate. What did you find most enjoyable about writing Itali in Nephi's story? Itali, in many ways, is a version of many DACA kids that are committed to being good citizen examples and make the most of their opportunities in this country. The first-generation workers have demonstrated outstanding work ethic and accomplishments, and I wanted to demonstrate their virtues and abilities of success in the USA. I wanted to show with Nephi, while alien beings have been visiting our planet for eons, typically seek to avoid human contact. But in this instance, a relationship friendship was formed by two very different individuals, yet both aliens. All of Anthony Garcia's books are available online. He also showcases his books and is available for a meet and greet every first Friday at Denver's Museo de las Americas, 861 Santa Fe Drive. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.